How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are back at it again, another weekend, another Q&A day. So, as our tradition is, we don't have very many traditions, but what traditions we do have, our tradition for the for Saturdays is it's an open floor Q&A. So, whatever's on your heart, on your mind, you got any comments, questions, issues, debate topics, discussion topics, arguments, whatever, go ahead, fire away, be glad to hear from you. Uh, what we try to do is to take every topic, everything that comes up, and we bring it back to the Word of God to see what does the Word of God have to say about this. So we learn how to apply the purest form of sola scriptura upon anything. We don't go to catechisms, creeds, commentaries, councils, not opinions, dreams, visions, feelings, opinions. What does the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Bible have to say on this? God's Word, the Word of the living God that was revealed to us, given to us by the mouths of His servants. He inspired them what to say and write, and He preserves His Word unto all generations. And we have it today, and we know the truth of God by the Word of God. And there's an answer for absolutely every single thing in the Word of God. As God is infinite, so is His Word. His Word came from Him, by Him, through Him. So we can trust in the Word of God to lead us into all truth. So I hope you can understand. I hope you accept that. So again, if you have any comments, questions, issues, anything else at all, go ahead, fire away, ask away. We answer things in sequence of order. They come in. And... Uh, yeah, so I got a, a, a bunch of things here on the board that I'd like to go over today and this to discuss. And again, as we go through this, feel free to jump in, chime in, whatever, and uh, we'll just uh, hash this all out, see what does the Word of God actually have to say on the matter. So, there you go. Good morning, good morning. How's it going, folks? Woke up just in time, eh? Where's the coffee machine? <laughs> Yeah, like I've said before, I, I, I prefer the French press. It, it's my favorite one. I've tried different percolators and Keurigs, and they're great. They, they do a really good job, but just in my personal opinion, <laughs> this is a non-biblical thing, so I can, you know, my opinion. Uh, uh, my opinion is I prefer the French press. It just, it, it just seems to bring up much more flavor, and yeah, I'm a little bit of a coffee snob. <laughs> but uh, uh, what I like to do, what I found works really great, is uh, you don't boil the water. As if you boil the water, it gets so hot that it actually burns the grounds, the coffee grounds, and it brings out a lot more bitterness. So you want to keep the water between 165 and 175 degrees Fahrenheit. Don't really want to go any more than 175 degrees Fahrenheit. Keep it between there, 165, 175, and it just heats it up just perfectly. Brings out all the flavor with very minimal bitterness. And uh, before you put the water in the grounds, you just want to put a pinch of salt. Put a pinch of salt in the in the grounds. It really, uh, help, again, helps cut bitter. It brings out more flavor. And then use a bit, bit of brown sugar, not white sugar. Brown sugar brings out more of a malty flavor. It makes it more malty, and it's really, really good, so... There you go. Try that. Try that. Um, but uh, once you put the water in, um, depending how strong you want it, let it sit for about up to 15 minutes. 
it'll cool down just enough so you can drink it. You're not going to scald your mouth. Um, but yeah, let it sit for about 15 minutes and it is just fantastic. So yeah, so there you go. That's how you make a good cup of coffee from a French press. <clears throat> so that's what I like to do. I use very little brown sugar. Most often I drink it black. But uh, people say, oh, I can't drink it black. It's too bitter. That's because you're boiling the water. That's because you're boiling the water, and it makes it very bitter. Very, very bitter. So you bring down the temperature of the water, and you'll find there's a lot more flavor and a lot less bitterness. So there you go. All right. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Everybody's pouring in. There we go. Okay. French press coffee's classy. <laughs> Yeah, I've never been called classy. Okay. Been called everything else under the sun, but not classy. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's get going. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining in. All right, so you know the drill. You know the drill. Go grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens. Always make sure you have your notepads and pens and all that. And... Um, Again, if there's anything on your heart, on your mind, you'd like to talk about, please go ahead, fire away, be glad to hear from you. Um, as well, grab your tea, grab your coffee, grab your snacks, come join us at the table. It's time to study the Word of God. Jackie says, love this shirt. Yes, I know, I know I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's got the soldier on the front. It says Jesus down the sleeves. And on the back, it has just a whole whole bunch of different names of Christ. Uh, it's just one of my favorite. On, on the hood, it has a nice big cross on the hood and everything. So it's awesome. I absolutely love it. It was a, a present from my parents. I absolutely love it. Yeah. All right. So the first thing I kind of wanted to, to go over, just something just to talk about, is... Uh, the topic of, as you see, I'm wearing it boldly, the topic of crosses. Now, I know we've kind of gone over this a little bit before, but I just want to just really emphasize on this. Because some people have asked me questions about this recently. And is it biblical? Is it right? Is it okay to wear a cross? What does the Bible actually say on this? Well, firstly, what we have to take a look because some people say, well, because it's it's a graven image. Or we're not supposed to wear graven images. Okay. Let's go back to that. Exodus chapter 20. Grab your Bibles, please. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> In Exodus chapter 20, and we'll start at verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, and have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, Thou, sh thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay? Now verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Okay. So, what's the context? You see, this is where we've got to be very careful of people who say, see, see, it says, make no graven images. So, no graven images of any kind. Um, that's not what that's saying. 
that's called that's called cherry picking where you just take a single word or uh, part of a sentence or part of a verse or a single verse and you pluck it out of context and you build a doctrine on it so you make it say something that it's not actually contextually saying you want to put it back in the narrative and you want to see okay what is the full narrative of that see this is also a bit of the issue with the the uh, chapter verse divisions we have the chapter verse divisions because when these books when the books of the scriptures were written they did not have chapter verse divisions the chapter verse divisions were added well later on were added in a more modern era to assist with the searching and the reading and the studying of the scriptures the chapter verse divisions themselves are not inspired were not given by god but they are used as a tool, as a study tool, to help in the reading and the studying of the Word of God, the chapter-verse divisions. Now, because of that, it can cause some issue where people reading the Word of God will wind up stopping short in the context because that's where the verse ended. Don't. Keep reading. Keep reading. You might actually fulfill the context back up into the previous verses and see where's the full context. You want to read the full context, not just read where the verse chapter divisions start and end. So do not read in accordance with the chapter verse divisions. Read in accordance with the context. Okay. So with that, we need to back up and we need to take a look at verse Three. This is where this context starts. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the context is God's other deities, uh, images and icons of religious and spiritual nature that people would serve. See, see, look, thou shalt make no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Images of what? Psalms 135, talking about the fashioning of idols. Jeremiah 10, the fashioning of idols. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything. Verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. So this is in reference to fashioning and creating images for the purpose of worship. Okay? So like the Roman Catholic statues of Mary, the saints, or their crucifixes, those kinds of things, the Hindu statues and all that kind of stuff. Now, let's, let's the, take this context then and rein this in and take a look. Okay, what about things like this? All right, so for the born again Christian, this is immensely different, immensely different from the Catholic idea. You see, the born-again Christian, we, we use the empty cross. We use the empty cross, okay? The Catholic, the Orthodox, them, those kinds of individuals, they use what's called a crucifix, a, a depiction of the crucifixion. So where they have the cross with the dude on it. I say dude because it's not Jesus, because Jesus is not on the cross, and because of what the crucifix actually stands for symbolically. The crucifix, uh, the Catholic Orthodox crucifix, specifically is designed to symbolize and stand for the Catholic Orthodox doctrine of continual atonement, the working of continual repentance, that it's an, that salvation is an ongoing atoning process that you 
earn your salvation after you're holy enough to enter the bliss of heaven through the fires of purgatory. And so the crucifix stands for works to earn, righteous works to earn. That's the standard. But the born-again Christian's symbol is the empty cross because it was a one-time atonement, one-time sacrifice. The cross is empty. It is finished. Christ is alive. It's not a continual atoning. It was a one-time atonement. So that's what this stands for. So now the also additional difference is that um, in the Catholic Orthodox tradition, more so in the Catholic tradition, they actually believe that the symbol of the crucifix, the symbol of the thing that they wear, actually has some kind of mystic divine component where if I wear it, it will actually protect me. It will ward off evil and it will help guide me and guard me. There's a special mystic divine component connected to it and that it will help me and that I can, I can venerate it and everything else. No, that, that, that's, that's called enchantment and charming. That's actually a form of witchcraft. That's called amulet work. They're making amulets. But for the born-again Christian, it, it, we understand and know it has nothing. It's a hunk of metal. It's a hunk of metal in the shape of a cross. That's all it is. Now, symbolically, what does the born-again Christian cross stand for? Okay, now, doctrinally, as we see in Philippians chapter 3, I believe it is where Paul talks about that there are some now who walk who are enemies of the cross, that we preach the cross. It's about the work of the cross. So we see the work of the cross, the preaching of the cross, and about how, how we stand for the cross that the cross is the born-again Christian symbol of our gospel of what we believe in. That the work is done, it's finished, and Christ is alive, and it's not a continual work. So we wear, we use, pulpits are in the shape of a cross. You'll see a cross in, in churches, on churches. That, that It's just the symbol that designates our doctrine, our gospel. This is just what I stand for. So it's like a a billboard it says declares what i stand for it this does not protect me it does not guard me i don't venerate it it, it is just a hunk of metal i can wear i cannot wear it. it makes no difference i'd like to wear it because i like publicizing what i stand for that's just what i do with that so as we see we got to make sure that we actually apply the word of god properly when it comes to the idea of images graven images okay what does the bible actually mean in that um we take it in the full content now bowing serving so this is imagery work uh, creating fashioning images these things graven images for the purpose of veneration and like the the pagan cult worship idea that's what it is so does this mean that the christian can't wear a cross no no, that's stupid. To, to, to take that logic then, to take that logic, that, 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 that it actually means in general any graven image, that then I guess you can't have, if you're a hunter, you can't have a statue of a deer or a duck in your house. You can't have pictures hanging on your wall. Um, no images of any kind. You've got to clean your house like a Spartan and live like a monk. That, but that's not what that means. That's not what that means. So we got to make sure we understand what we're talking about. All right. So that's topic number one. If you have any comments, questions, issues, insights you'd like to add into that, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. <clears throat>
Okay, now, I, I, just a straying thought. This comes in regarding this. Uh, some people have asked, okay, well, then what about, like, say, uh, let's say I have a... Uh, I have a little statue of an angel, some people have said, and, you know, a little angel, and I have it on, on a countertop, and does that mean I can't have a little statue of an angel? Okay, as long as you understand that's not what angels look like, and as long as you're not thinking that that thing, it represents a protection, it will help you, it will guide you, you talk to it, you pray to it, you venerate it, as long as you understand it has no power, nothing, it's just, an, it's just a, a thing. It's no different than having one of these okay in that aspect okay i i see what you're saying and that's fine i know many christians who have that but as long as you understand that it's not uh a, something that will actually assist you and help you in any way shape or form that you're not going to apply any form of mystical component to it then there you go there you go <clears throat> Let's go down through. Hey, good morning, good morning. How's it going? All right. Through faith and grace says, Hello, I've been seeing your lives lately. Thank you for spreading the gospel. Amen. I had a cousin pass away this week. I'm sorry to hear that. He was only 22. Can you please pray for my family? Absolutely. And everyone else in here, uh, I see in the comment, uh, uh, lady here through faith and grace could you please uh, remember her in your prayers or in her family as uh, they had a cousin pass away who's only 22 that's that's terrible um but yeah we'll be praying for the family okay uh bible club says i heard there's two biblical ways to interpret hebrews 6 4 to 6 oh really one unbiblical way to interpret believers losing salvation is this true what's your interpretation all right let's get down to it let's get busy hebrews so everyone please take your bibles and please turn to hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6. now we've actually gone through this multiple times i've even done a specific video for this passage in of itself, but I never get tired of going through this because this uh, refers to the gospel and I never tire of preaching the gospel. I love it. So, <clears throat> all right, so let's take a look. What does Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 actually mean? Now to simplify it, just and not, not do a super deep study, but just simply, what does it mean? Well, this is how you read it. This is how you read and how you study the word of God. You read through it, then you back up, go again and over slowly, paying attention to the specific words. So let's read Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and then we're going to back up and go again through slowly. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh and put them to an open shame. All right, back up, verse 4. <clears throat> for it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. Hold up, hold up. Okay. So, uh, Doki, let me just ask you a question. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. Is enlightenment salvation? 
is enlightenment salvation. Because <clears throat> this is the whole key. The key to the whole passage. What is enlightenment? Is enlightenment salvation? Enlightening, definitely not salvation. That's right. So what is enlightenment? Enlightenment would be intellectualism. You know, i.e. the light bulb moment. The light bulb moment. The, oh, I get it moment. It's, a, it's intellectualism, understanding. It's the knowledge of. Because as you see, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, uh, the natural man receiveth not the things that be of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. So an unsaved individual, an unsaved individual coming to the Word of God, opening the Word of God, is not going to be able to comprehend it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it because it's spiritually discerned. So if they're coming to the word of God, hardened heart and all this kind of state, they're not going to get it. It takes the Holy Spirit to understand the word of God. So it is impossible for those, for those who are once enlightened. So they came to a moment, a point where they were given that, that they were open to it. And the Lord showed them the spirit of God came upon them and the Oh, I see what John 3.16 is saying. I get, I see how I'm a sinner. I get what the gospel is. Oh, I see what Jesus did. Oh, now I get it. That. That. Okay. So those who are once enlightened, and in this moment of enlightenment, they receive a taste of the, of the heavenly gift. It's like, like I use the explanation, like going to Walmart. <clears throat> You go to Walmart, and you know when you go through the door, sometimes they have that little kiosk, and that it has the little paper cups, the samples, and she's standing there with the little uh, with the gloves on, and she it talk, shows you what this is about. It hands you the little cup, and you take the little piece of cheese on the toothpick, and you you try the piece of cheese, see if you like it. That's a taste of. You didn't fully indulge. You weren't given the whole thing. You were just given a little taste of, just so you could see, just to entice you, to help you to get a better comprehension grasp of what it's about. Right? It, for, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. We're made partakers of the Holy Ghost because what does the Spirit of God do? He convicts you of sin. He shows you the truth. He helps you to, it helps you to see what the full gospel is. He brings you to the cross so that you could believe partake of the holy ghost they're not indwelt yet they're not saved yet and have tasted the good word of god because they are given the comprehension of john three sixteen by the spirit of god tasted the good word of god and the powers of the world to come if they those in a state of enlightenment in the light bulb moment giving their the holy spirit gives them the sample a little sampling of it gives it and they taste it and you know sometimes you you go to these uh, these kiosks and you try that sample of the paper cup and you're like oh i like that i want that but sometimes you take a taste and you're like oh, no no thanks I, I i i don't want it and you walk away 
if they shall fall away to reject resist to not take part not to participate in they refuse the gift see the holy spirit of god comes up upon an individual and gives them a sample a tasting of it of i have this free gift here do you want it here this is what it's like this is what it tastes like this is what it's did you want it's free but but here's here's what it tastes like and you taste it like oh i want that and you grab the free gift but some people they see the free gift and they try the sample and they're like no i don't want it and they walk away if they shall fall away to how hard it is to renew them again into repentance why because they've already tasted and seen it that they already know what it's about there's nothing to entice them anew to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucified to themselves they put to death the son of god and put him to an open shame they tasted they saw they got it they they realized what it was and they rejected it and they mistreat christ in in their rejection that's what hebrews 6 4 to 6 means makes sense <clears throat> excuse me all right so I hope that makes sense. I hope you get that. Um, all right. So any other comments, questions, issues, insights, anything else at all? Let's go down through. Sunny Day says, yes, I wear in order to honor him. Remind me of the gospel regarding like a, a cross kind of thing. Yep. Amen. That's great. Um, let's see if there's any other questions that I might have missed all right Amir Amia says is it wrong to grab your cross or touch it while you're in deep prayer just a reminder of the cross which Jesus done no again no it's sometimes I do it depends at again as we understand that the cross symbol in and of itself the object the thing the image has no mystical power does nothing it assists with nothing it's just an object it's just a thing and when and yeah like for example for me i have a bit of add i used to suffer from extreme uh adhd and so i'm always fussing fidgeting i that's, that's part of why you notice through the broadcast i'm always playing with my pen i need something in my hand it's just that's just so when i'm when i'm praying when i'm when i'm uh, meditating the word of god and i'm studying sometimes i have that and I, and I like to use a cross even just because again yeah it having that that symbol and what it represents always in front of me always before my eyes in this and i'm thinking it just yeah it just seems seems fitting i don't know how to word it it's not that it itself is some mystical divine thing it has no mystical component it's just a thing but it's the representation and so having that and holding that when you're especially when you're praying whatever as long as you understand you don't have to it's not some mystical component mystical observance it's just it's a thing but it's what it represents and having that representation there you go you you don't have to uh, if you if you don't want to but it's not wrong if you do as long as you understand it properly let me understand it properly it's just an object it's just a thing and it has no special mystic value to it there you go 
Okay. Uh, Doki says that makes sense. Thank you. I can't believe people look to Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 as proof texts for losing salvation. Yeah, I know. That's because they don't read it properly. The other thing also I want to just point out in that, um, in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Um, <clears throat> now, you have your Bible there. In Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, you'll note what it says. Those who were enlightened, drawn by the Spirit of God, given the full understanding here, the comprehension, they saw, they got it, they they understood the Spirit of God working in the heart and mind, and they resisted, they resisted, and fell away. See that? Right? Hebrews 6, 4-6 directly, specifically contradicts and refutes the Calvinistic model of irresistible grace. Because the idea of irresistible grace, that when God draws you, you can't resist. Um, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, flat out says you can Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, flat out says it does happen, and this is how it happens. That the Spirit of God is upon them and drawing them, showing them, enlightening, and, and convicting them, and they see it, they get it, they understand it, and they don't want it, they resist it and walk away, fall away. Uh, they, they, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, contradicts irresistible grace, doctrine of Calvinism. Just wanted to throw that out there just for fun. All right. <laughs> I don't want to get into the whole Calvinistic debate right now. <laughs> Actually, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jerry, uh, we're planning on, uh, we're setting up a, a discussion uh, debate. Not so much a debate, but a, a joint discussion where him and I are going to get together and we are going to rip to shreds the Lordship Salvation model. Showing what the Word of God actually says and how Lordship Salvation is false. Uh, 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 we're hope, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, wanting to do it tomorrow. We're going to be holding this discussion over on my uh, ministry's Instagram account. And, um, and you can access my Instagram account, ministry's Instagram account, through our website if you're not already uh, a member, christiancoffeetime.ca. If you go to our website, we have links to all our other platforms and accounts, and you can... Uh, access it there you can click the instagram uh, link there uh, two core two one and take it right over there and you can uh, follow our ministry there and you'll be notified when we go live we're going to be doing a doing it live we're a live discussion talking about lordship salvation how it's not biblical and all of that so i hope you would join in with that um we have not yet set up a time we're still tentatively trying to work things up but we're thinking of lord lord willing hopefully getting it going monday tomorrow so uh, you'll be you'll see uh, the things uh, once we get it going, I, I should, if I remember, put up a notification, let everybody know this is what we're doing and when. OK. All right. Uh, going down through the comments here. OK, uh, Jackie says, I've been researching the rapture. OK, I was looking at pre-wrath and pre-trib. What are your views? I know. 
we're not going to be here for God's wrath, but it seems like the seals are not, not from God. What are your view? Okay. Uh, regarding the rapture, when does it happen and all that kind of thing? What does the Bible actually say on this? Okay. So for a deeper study in this, I'm, um, I'm going to start with this for a deeper study. If you're interested, we actually have a full, uh, Bible study playlist, a walkthrough of the book of revelation on our, on our, uh, YouTube channel here. Um, it's with my dad, pastor Paul. He's a specialist in the book of revelation. One of, one of the best teachers of the end times I know of. I'm not just saying that that he's been studying it for decades and decades uh, uh all of the end times revelations he got so many notes and he does a full class style bible studies uh walk through of revelation uh, going through each verse each line all the way down through cross referencing all all the books all the to the old testament uh, daniel and amos and all the way up through through the gospels all the way up through and tying it all in showing you this is what it is laying it all out fantastic uh, uh outline of revelation so make sure you check that out our uh, walkthrough of the book of Revelation with Pastor Paul. If you need help finding that, you can contact us through the website, and I'll be happy to get the link to you. But uh, to summarize, simply, when we take a look at what the Bible says on this, when is the end? When is it going to happen? When is the rapture? Well, as we see what the Word of God actually teaches, it talks about the certain signs and events and things that will occur before that uh, before the the lord comes in the clouds to gather us up now to start with that some people say well the word rapture is not in the bible neither is the term age of accountability but the doctrine of it what it stands for is in the bible the bible does talk about uh, the rapture i.e the gathering of the saints together unto christ in that day when he calls us up to him the other you know, those which are in the, in the grave shall hear his voice and go up and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up that the, the catching up of the saints the, the gathering of the saints that's the rapture that's what that means when will that happen well as you see that there will be uh, talks at the end there'll be wars rumors of wars and pestilences and plagues and famines and all these things going on uh but uh fearing out the end is not yet uh, and but uh we need to look for some other signs so we see that uh primarily when you go to the book of revelation cross-referencing with second thessalonians chapter 2 second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 read that and we see that that uh, before the lord comes that certain things will happen certain things will occur first the firstly there will be peace in the middle east for the purpose that the third temple will be built because the man of sin the antichrist will sit in the temple declaring that he is god so therefore the temple has to be built but before the temple can be built there has to be peace so you see the certain sequence of events of these things that will happen. It says that the day of the Lord that will, the coming of the Lord will not happen. The gathering will not happen is what it flat out says until these things happen first. The great falling away, the man of sin be revealed. All right. Well, we're not told how long the, the great falling away will occur for. That's one thing. But the man of sin, the antichrist will occur and will, will show up on scene. And that uh, he'll make peace in the Middle East. He'll conquer the world in flatteries and lies and 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 all these things. He'll conquering with the bow, but no arrows and all this. And he and he will make it so they can build the temple that he will then sit in. It talks about that when he declares that he is God, 
and things that will happen. There will be the sun will be darkened, the moon will turn to blood, the stars will fall from heaven. And uh, it says, and then the Lord will appear in the clouds. But if you look at the timeline of when these things occur, when these things actually occur, it all of this stuff doesn't happen at the very beginning. Because he already comes on scene and is already enacting some things during this time. It's part way in. It's part way in. When he sits in the temple, declares he is God, when we're taken up. We're not taken up at the beginning. Pre-trib doesn't fit. Post-trib's just stupid. Uh, but we see it's part way in. Now what this is called is that the first period, the first bit, is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God does not occur till after the rapture. Till after the rapture. So it's called pre-wrath. Because we're taken out before the wrath, which is symbolic all the go all the way back to Noah. That they, they were saved from the wrath, the judgment of God. Lot and his family were saved from the wrath, the judgment of God. These are all pictures all the way down through that the believers were delivered from the wrath. That the wrath of God is not appointed to us that we are not appointed to wrath is what the bible talks about and so we look at the timeline well according to the word of god when is the wrath of god poured out after we're taken out so again if you want more detail on this um, uh, a deeper study regarding these things please check out our our uh, bible study series on the book of revelation but yeah so there you go that's my view <clears throat> okay going down through Michael says, uh, when looking to make a t-shirt of biblical figures, I was thinking of jail. What do you think? I think she nailed it. Yeah, but um, okay, I get it. Ha. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, Michael says, rip to shreds, Lordship Salvation. Are you afraid you won't get it? from Johnny Mac <laughs> I don't care about uh, other other people like that uh, I'm not worried about the wolves and the goats and and all the others and opponents and people who disagree I, I don't care it's a, what does the Bible say and if you if you don't like what I'm preaching well then show me from the Word of God how I'm wrong I don't want to hear your your the Westminster Confession. I don't want to hear uh, uh, catechisms, creeds, and councils. I don't want to hear opinions and other men's writings and Augustine and the writings of fathers. I don't want to hear any of that. I want to see book, chapter, verse of the Bible. I want you to show me from the Word of God how I'm wrong. I want you to show me how how sanctification precedes salvation. I want to see how we're supposed to earn our final salvation and somehow that's not works to earn to gain. I want you to show me by the word of God uh, uh, how your views line up without contradicting any other set point of scripture. Good luck with that. That's what I care about. I don't care who people are, what they are, how famous they are, how powerful they are. I don't care. Uh, I care what the Bible says. So show me by the word of God how I'm wrong. So I'm not worried about mac or any of those others or the pied piper john piper leading people to false gospels yeah all right let's go down through
Okay. Rosalie has a question. Okay. Oh boy. Get right into it, are we? I always I always hesitate going up the whole Christmas thing and Easter thing and all this and because it is such such a highly controversial topic. There's so many people have differing views and it causes a lot of problems with some people. And but okay, so so what I try to do is I try to walk a fine line. Uh, uh, understanding as well the whole Christmas Easter thing. So we was like, well, it's pagan. I have nothing to do with other people disagree. Okay, well, well, let's just how about our feelings and opinions aside, all right? Which includes any writings slash books material of other people regarding those topics push it all aside for now throw it all off the table what i want you to take is the bible and the bible alone take all preconceived ideas just push it all aside for a moment and i want you to put the bible down and i want you to come to the bible and use the bible and only the bible to justify validate your ideas all right that's what we're going to do here right now okay so i've done this study and i've looked into this i have been on both sides of the argument i used to be of the the view the stance that uh, it's all pagan i have nothing to do with it and but i've kind of changed my view for for a different reason um not like how you would think but so what i want to do is i want to present to you my personal study on this this is my writing my study that i present every year regarding the whole christmas easter holidays debate discussion thing if you disagree you disagree we disagree okay we can disagree and still be brothers and sisters in christ we can still get along i hope but uh here this is my thoughts on the whole christmas easter thing and i hope you understand all right <clears throat> as for celebration of holidays it's up to personal choice but again, it would be a shame to pass up any and all opportunities to evangelize the gospel. Now, here's my main primary argument. The Apostle Paul used the altar to the unknown God on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. He used the pagan altar to the unknown God. Amidst all of their idols and statues on Mars Hill, he used the altar to the unknown God as a springboard to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was he wrong? I'll just, I'll just wait just a moment. Was he wrong for that? <clears throat> let's continue the apostle paul used the altar to the unknown god on mars hill as a springboard to present the gospel okay now regarding christmas or easter 
whether it was or wasn't pagan, is not the point. But rather understanding that the whole public, unsaved public, now sees these times of the year as Christian and identifies it as a Christian holiday. Thus, why they're always trying to erase any image or depiction or idea of Christ out of it. Thus, using these times as an opportunity to reach out and witness to them about Christ instead of confusing them by fighting within ourselves over such things, Christmas is publicly seen as synonymous with the birth of Christ. Yes, we know and understand Jesus wasn't born in December and all of that. But the unsaved people don't know that. And okay, just we could look at it as a belated birthday party. Bear with me. Bear with me. And they see it as synonymous with the birth of Christ. And if that gives me a chance to speak to them about the gospel, then I'm going to take it and use it. Same as Easter, which has been changed. It has been, t- they have been, these times have been taken. They have been changed. They have been altered. And now they are now synonymous with identification with Christian ideology and holidays. Bear with me. The same as Easter, which has been changed and become synonymous with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. These times now have been redeemed and have now nothing to do with ancient ideas, but have been changed completely and now are used to honor Christ and and nothing of this world. For example, nobody at the time of Christmas is worshiping Isis, Horus, and Tammuz, and 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 the sun god, and all of this. No one's doing that. So Easter, no one's going to pagan Roman temples, fertility temples, and and, and they're completely changed. People say, "Well, well, it used to." Okay, well, how? Well, let me just. I'm just going to sidestep here just for a moment with another uh, uh, view, another argument. Okay, well, how far are we supposed to take this then? Because every single day of the year is named after a pagan god. Our constellations, our planets are named after pagan gods. The days of the week are named after pagan gods. Much of what we do is is directly from or about or used to be about paganism of some form how far are we supposed to go with this ideology because if, if we can't have anything to do with christmas and easter well then i guess we got a problem with our calendars in and of themselves how far are we supposed to take this th- this view but bear with me let's get back to this bear with me one more time these times have nothing to do with ancient ideas now but have been changed completely and now are used to honor Christ and nothing of this world. You will say, well, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it teach us that we're supposed to commemorate the birth of Christ. Really? 
Really? Is that why the Bible talks about how the prophets long to see the fulfillment of the promise? Is that why the, 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 the angels appeared and celebrated the birth of Jesus to the shepherds? And the shepherds went and worshipped Jesus and commemorated this and went, ran everywhere and told them that he came. And why the wise men came and worshipped him and told everybody he came. And well, The Bible's full about the commemoration of the arrival of the promise of the Christ Messiah. Mm. And furthermore, how is it wrong? How is it wrong to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, he wasn't born in December. I know that. It's called a belated birthday party. How is it wrong? Well, you're well. You know the, that day used to be a pagan. Oh, so you? But it's okay to go to church on Sunday. The day that used to be the day that would commemorated the worship of the sun. But we don't worship the sun. Instead, it's a day. To one man, a day, uh, one day is the same as another, as Paul says. And to one man, every day is alike. But but to, that doesn't mean anything. The day, it's a day. Um, it's a day we gather together to worship Jesus Christ. We don't worship the Son and we don't care about paganism. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't mean anything to us. We worship Jesus Christ. And this just so happens to be a day of the year that is universally seen as, as, the, as the accepted time where all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ worship and honor and glorify Jesus Christ, the arrival of the promise and how Jesus Christ came into the world like he said he would. What's wrong with that? Who cares what the pagans used to do? We have nothing to do with the pagans. The paganism has nothing to do with us. Well, Easter is called Ishtar, and it used to be about worshiping pagans. So what? I don't care what the pagans did. I don't care what the pagans did. They're dead. Gone. Their gods are dead. Gone. They have nothing to do with us. They, uh, and furthermore, if you actually researched... You could, you could probably find that there was somehow, sometime, some pagan event on every single day of the year. Does that mean I can't do anything because some pagan did a thing once, once a long time ago? Who cares about the pagans? Worship Jesus Christ. Who cares about the pagans? Who cares what they did? We worship Jesus Christ. Let's get back to this. These times have nothing to do with the ancient ideas, but have been changed completely and, and now are used to honor Christ and nothing of this world. This, though, shows the exclusion of Halloween, for example, though, which is still a time of darkness, evil, and glorifying the demonic and everything God hates and calls abomination. Halloween has absolutely no redemptive aspects, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing, about Halloween that can be used to glorify God. FYI christmas whether or not it had pagan origins and now has been changed and no longer has paganized aspects nobody is worshiping tammuz or the sun we celebrate jesus christ the same as easter these holidays are now centered on gathering with family dinners gifts and remembering christ's arrival and fulfillment of prophecy i.e throwing parties in the name of jesus christ to honor and glorify jesus christ in the fellowship and joy of the spirit and the joy of fellowship and the joy of christ just as the angel said at his birth great joy to all the world 
So we gather in celebration of Jesus Christ. Again, I ask, how is that wrong? How is that wrong? I challenge you to show me from the word of God how that's wrong. So, how is it wrong? Unlike Halloween, however, that has no redemptive aspects at all, the whole thing is pagan and cursed of God. I'm neither for nor against Christmas or Easter. What I am for, my personal view, is that if something can be used to celebrate, speak of, identify with, or magnify the Lord God Jesus Christ without contradicting direct scripture, then who am I to say out against it? And who are you to say out against it? Just a thought. But furthermore, Christmas and Easter are one of the few times that the unsaved public are most likely to listen to witnessing attend church and not be hardened against Christ. It would be a shame to pass up a chance to use this. Whether we like it or not, Christmas and Easter is a time that Western culture allows Christ-centered ideology to surface without massive backlash. Charles Spurgeon, for example, was in favor of using Christmas for outreach and even said that it is an excellent time for reaching the hearts of men with Christ. That's what Charles Spurgeon happened to say about it. Furthermore, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 13. Now let's look into something else just for a moment. Isaiah 60, 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. One more time. Isaiah 60, 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree and the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The pine tree. Bear, bear with me. And for those who use Jeremiah 10 as an argument to condemn putting tinsel on a tree, <clears throat> Jeremiah 10 is not talking about Christmas trees. That's a massive, incorrect reading of the context. It's clearly talking about making idols with mouths, hands, feet, and covering them with gold and silver and carrying them around. Let's take a look. Notice when you break down Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 2 to 6. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heaven for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they deck it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Notice when you break down Jeremiah 10, 2-6, word by word, that it's speaking of actual idol making. 
Verse 2, learning the way of the heathen. Verse 3, working and cutting, crafting out of a tree. Verse 4, plating and decking with gold and silver and fastening it so it cannot move. Verse 5, they cannot speak, they cannot move, but are carried about the people. Verse 6, there is not like, there is not, blah, there is not like thee, no other gods that are like the Lord God. It's not a Christmas tree or anything like that. It's literal making of false god idols. All people see is the, is the word tree. And they cherry pick that passage and create conspiracy theories about it. Try to find a way to condemn the decorating of trees. Which doesn't make sense. Trees are plants. Plants are not bad. Decorations are not bad. Putting decorations on plants is not bad. Making idols and worshipping them is... Now, notice the exact same wording in Psalms regarding the making of idols and heathen. Notice the literal exact same lingo as Jeremiah 10, 2 to 6. Psalms 135, verses 15 to 18. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but speak not. Eyes of they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Psalms 115, 4-8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Isaiah 40, verses 19-20. The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not wrought he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved it's not a christmas tree furthermore we see that god says in isaiah 60 verse 13 that he uses decorative pine trees for his glory I'll leave that one there. But you do what you want. You're under no uh, obligation to have to participate. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to participate in anything. But to but to one man he esteemeth one day above another, and to and to another man every day is alike. One man celebrates holidays, one man doesn't. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Um, do whatever you want. But I'm. But all I'm doing is telling you what the Bible flat out says, and that the the previous what I said is what I said. So there you go. It's my thoughts. So we gather together for the worship and the glory and the celebration of Jesus Christ. And how is that wrong? Also, how is it wrong to put decorations on a plant? Okay. All right, let's go down through. So, Rosalie, I hope that makes sense. And you said your explanation is very good. Thank you. Can I find it somewhere on your homepage? Uh, actually, uh, I don't know if I have that actually pinned up somewhere. Uh, so just uh, web on our website here, just, just shoot me an email. 
shoot me an email and uh, at uh, time.ca and I'll I'll just copy this and send it to you in an email. Uh, so that'd be just the easiest. So just email me and let me know what you're looking for. Okay, let's go down through. All right, is there anything else I missed? Uh, Michael says, Legacy Bible has for the statutes of the peoples are vanity because it is, it is wood cut from the forest. Yeah, different versions say different things, but you want to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and do a study on what these things say. And furthermore, uh, like I said, uh, you, you, it's just, uh, and I found this verse in Isaiah 60, verse 13. Um, it was kind of God's mic drop about the whole thing. Again, I'm just going to read the verse one more time. I, I mean, just, I, I mean, just Isaiah 60, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. What do we do? We take a pine tree and decorate it to, to, to beautify because it looks pretty. You put ornaments and things on it. It's not. It's not an idol. It, it's not Tammuz. It's not Baal. It's not Moloch. It's not an idol. We're not worshiping it. We're not venerating. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a plant with decorations. And we it and it's a time that we gather together to worship Jesus Christ. And it says here they use fir trees and pine trees to beautify the place of God. I mean, ha! You you take it. I'm just putting it out there. You take it. You do what you want. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Let's continue. Uh, Log says, as you said, brother, it's the idol worship and praying to such things that would make it wrong. Exactly. There you go. Rosalie says, six years ago, I used the. One year Bible to read the whole Bible within a year. It was a great experience. I can highly recommend it. You can start any day, but uh, January 1st is very nice. Yeah, go for it. Why not? Back then we had a Facebook group to go together through the one year Bible. It was such a special year. I'm thinking about doing it again. Why not? Do it. Whatever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy might. So there you go. So again, folks, if you would like a copy of my of my personal write-up views all this kind of thing regarding christmas easter holidays that whole thing if you would like a copy of this email me at christiancoffeetime.ca christiancoffeetime.ca click the contact us link and shoot me an email say say you're looking for my uh, message on christmas and holidays and and i'll be happy to send you uh, just copy paste what i have here um I might do actually do a video uh, regarding this specifically at some point, or I might just post this up. But uh, until then, you can get it that way. Just shoot me an email, let me know. Okay. There you go. That's that. Okay. Now, uh, let's see. What other one should I get into? Here's the other one. Now, I mentioned this that, uh, a couple days ago. And I had some people actually come at me and get upset and they don't like what I'm talking about. They, they don't see the difference. But uh, 
Okay, it's in regards to, we're talking about salvation, eternal security, once saved, always saved, and how we're held in the hand of the Father, and no man can pluck us out, that we cannot lose our salvation. We cannot lose our salvation, it can't be lost, taken away, or be recanted. Uh, once saved, always saved is the biblical truth, and we need to understand this. And some people uh, say, well, well, the Bible says you could be struck out of the book of life. That your name could be struck out of the book of life. Yes, the Bible does say that. There, there, it does say that. But what you need to understand is this. <clears throat> that in the word of God, when you study the word of God, the first thing you must understand is that salvation is by grace, not by works. It's, it's by grace through faith, which is believing trust, not by righteous works. It's by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. As any man should boast, it's not of yourselves, not by the deeds of the law. That, okay, that we must understand that if salvation could be lost, taken away, or be recanted, if you could lose your salvation, that, by definition, denotes that salvation itself then would be by works to keep it that that i have to do enough fruit maintain this keep myself in such as i have to maintain to keep myself i.e righteous works to earn to gain otherwise i can lose it that salvation then is a reward for behavior okay so with that then how do we interpret your name being struck out of the book of life how do we interpret that then because a lot of people think that that's what that means. That means losing salvation. Well, you have, must understand that there is a difference between the book of life and the Lamb's book of life. There's two books. There are two books, and they're not the same. They're not the same. As you see, when we do a study, for example... In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, the man in the church of Corinth who is immoral and all of this, and Paul's telling him off and he wouldn't repent, and, and he says how, how you need to put this man out from you. And he says in verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, he says <clears throat> that he'll be delivered unto the devil for the destruction of the flesh. Death. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, hold on. Put a pin in that. Hold on. Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. We're Christians, believers, brethren, and they fell into sin. They lied to the Holy Ghost. Their lives are taken. They were brethren. They were saved. Scripture affirms this. We also take a look at what the Bible says. What? Know ye not? Ye are the temple of God which is in you, and ye are not your own. You're bought with a price. What does the Bible say? He who defiles the temple, him shall God destroy. You're the temple of God, thus meaning you're saved. You're saved. Born again, saved. You're the temple of the living God. He's living in you. You're the priest of the Lord. But you defiled the temple. How, how, how would you defile the temple? Sin, unrepentance, rebellion. You become one of those spoiled, rotten brats of God. And, you're, and by your behavior, you're slandering the name of the Lord, causing enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and you're ruining testimony, and you're bringing shame to the church that God, and you refuse to repent, and God's like, okay, you know what? You're done. And he pulls your card. 
Your name is struck out of the book of life, not the Lamb's book of life. Okay? Because we see here, bear with me, I'll explain it all, bear with me. As you see here, the Lamb's book of life is for those who are born again spiritually. Born again spiritually. John chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, for example. You must be born again. So you're born once into physical life. You're born of water. You're born of blood. You must be born of spirit, as Jesus says. So you're born once into life. You're in the, in the, in the book of life. And then you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're born again spiritually. You're written in the Lamb's book of life. You can be struck out of the book of life. Not the Lamb's book of life. Bear with me. The book of life is for those who are physically living, born physically, born of water, born of blood, which you which you, you can be blotted out of, as 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says. You can be destroyed, but your spirit is still saved. Also shown by Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. The Lamb's book of life is for those who are born again spiritually, and you cannot be removed or blotted from the Lamb's book. You cannot lose your salvation. But serious disobedience and rebellion can cause the Lord to end your physical life and bring you home because you're defiling the temple. He who defiles the temple, him shall God destroy, like Ananias and Sapphira. The first book of life deals with those who died in their sins and cannot enter heaven. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. The second book, the Lamb's Book of Life, deals with those born again and have their sins washed away. Revelation 21, 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In context, it's speaking about heaven. None can enter into it, heaven, except those who are in the Lamb's Book of Life, i.e. saved. If one could be struck out of the Lamb's book of life, nullifying the second birth, that then would denote salvation is by maintenance of works to earn to gain salvation. And as we know that salvation is by grace, i.e. unmerited favor of God, that I didn't merit it, I didn't earn it, it's not a reward, I don't deserve it, but he gave it to me anyways because he so loved me. By grace are you saved through faith, faith which is believing trust. As it says in Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's believing trust. So by the unmerited favor of God, by believing trust, are you saved and that not of yourselves, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a reward. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Look at what I did. Look how I maintained myself to get here. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, i.e. religiosity, churchianity, all the rest of it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God washes us, regenerates us, cleanses us, seals us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, not ours. Galatians 2, 16. Not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, but by the faith of Christ. So it's not by uh, works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law, not by maintenance of sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 30. 
1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus Christ is our sanctification. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He is our sanctification, our righteousness, because we have none. We have no good works. We have no good deeds. We have no goodness in ourselves. We have no righteousness of our own. John chapter 1, verse 13, that uh, we are born again, not by our will, not by our power, not by our blood, but by the power of God. So not by anything of us, all of him, none of me. And you're held the hand of the Father, no man can pluck you out. That means you cannot pluck yourself out either. And to, uh, to finalize this, again, to use my main argument in this is let me just ask you a question when did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father when did the prodigal son cease to be a son of his father when he walked away, i.e. apostatized from his father. Now, notice the words. <clears throat> notice the words. He, what? Took his inheritance. Okay? He took his inheritance. Okay, just a minute. What is our inheritance from our father he took his inheritance out into the world and what squandered it in riotous living and drunkenness and harlots and all the rest of it and even ended up in the pen with the pigs a picture of doing that which is forbidden covered in the mud and the manure of filth and 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 depravity then what happened and when did he cease to be a son of his father he didn't people say what well, but the father says my son was as did was as was as but wasn't it was almost like he was but he wasn't when did he cease to be a son of his father when did he cease to be blood kin when did he cease to be blood kin to his father he didn't but what, what did the father do oh my son is dead and then mourn his death did he mourn his death or did he stand on the road longing for his son to return? His son to return. And the son, what happened? He fell under conviction. Fell under conviction. Realized his error. Realized his sin. Realized what he did. He says, I'll return. He repented himself. He got up, climbed back. And as he's coming back, he said, the father saw him away off, ran, and embraced him in all the mud and the manure embraced him kissed him cleansed him first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if any man sin we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous and he cleansed him put on new robe he cleansed him and and they rejoiced that he returned when did he cease to be a son of his father didn't but what if what if what if what if a Christian stops believing. Well, let's just look at that just for a moment. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Let's just go to 2 Timothy just for a moment. Because you see, it's by grace through faith, not of works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law. 
And we want to take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And as Paul's talking about us, actually we should back up verse 11. Now we must understand, as I talked about this uh, yesterday, I believe it was. I talked about this yesterday in great detail. That the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2 is discipleship. Discipleship, okay? It's about discipleship. Not salvation, maintaining salvation, keeping salvation, and that kind of thing. It's talking about discipleship. But Paul does throw in an interesting tidbit. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. If we believe not, if we believe not, like, for example, you fall, because he's talking about trials and, and, and hardships and tribulations and things that come to test us and tries to, we are to endure hardness as a good soldier in Christ Jesus, that it can happen that trials and temptations and struggles and pains can come upon us and throw us into depression and bitterness and we can have a hard time and we can lose faith. It happens. But what, what if it even drives us to a point where we kind of give up the faith and we, quotation marks, stop believing? Does that mean we're not saved? Does that mean we're not saved? Look what it says in verse 13, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Because what happens? Ephesians 4.30, we are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. We're sealed by the Spirit of God into the day of redemption. Sealed. We are made His own. We are made His children. The prodigal son wandered off. Did the father deny his son? Deny him, uh, him which is of his own blood and flesh and bone? Father doesn't den deny his own. Yet he abideth faithful. Even when we're not. He abides faithful even when we are not. Even if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny his own. He cannot deny himself. Let's look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. We'll also note this other tidbit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, Influenced by the Spirit of God, convicted by the Spirit of God. No man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Can curse Christ. Curse the curse the gospel, curse Christ. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. So, as you see, yes, some can fall into depression and bitterness and can wind up losing faith and say they they say they stop believing and all the rest of that. That doesn't mean they're not saved. He abides faithful. What is it that we examine? We don't examine fruit. We examine conviction. We examine the gospel of Jesus Christ. What saves a person? Fruit bearing or belief in the gospel? Uh, John chapter 3 verse 18. If you have believed, there's no condemnation. But, but if you have not believed, they are condemned. They're condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because what can remove us from the love of God? Romans 8. 
neither height nor depth nor any other creature. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can pluck us out of his hand. Even when we as Christians have a spoiled, rotten brat moment, stomp our feet and say, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. Or even get mad. I hate you. Does that child stop being a child of the parent? Do the parents disown that child? No. So, by that definition, then, as we see, it's by grace, not works. By grace, not by righteous works. By grace, not, not keeping of law. By grace, not maintenance of righteous works. It's not by my will, my power, my blood, my desire, my want, John 1.13, but by the power of God. That even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with Father Jesus Christ the righteous. All who come to me, I will no wise cast out. You can't lose your salvation. There you go. <clears throat> okay. Um, we have a question here. But what about 1 John 2.19? Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, let's back up. Let's back up verse 15. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, and he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So what is the will of God? Hold up. What is the will of God? Doing the will of God. What is the will of God? That's John chapter 6. We see in uh, 25, 26. Or is it 20, 29? John chapter 6. What shall we do that might work the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. In verses uh, 39 and 40. And what is the Father's will? That all would all who see the Son would believe on him. The will of the Father is that all would come to Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God is not willing that any should perish, but all men should come to repentance. So, so the will of God is that you, you be born again saved. Uh, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, the Antichrist shall come. And even now there are many Antichrists. Many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. What's the context? Those believing in false Christs. They say they are of us. Like, for example, Mormons will say they're Christians. Catholics will say they're Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses say they're Christians. But are they? They're not of us. They're of a false Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us in our gospel and our doctrine. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And they cannot abide with us. They keep uh, uh, ob uh, objecting to what we have, and they keep separating themselves. They say they are, but they won't abide with us, because they are not of us. They're of a different Christ. So that's that's talking about there. That's not talking about a person who is saved and then walking away and no longer being saved. That's not what that's talking about. Because you can't lose salvation. Okay. Can you intentionally turn away and give it up, though? No. No man can pluck you out of my hand. That means you can't pluck yourself out either. If if you could give up your salvation, that means that, for example, you have power over your salvation. Well, let's just look at that one. Can I of my will will myself unsaved? Well, let's just look at that. 
let's just look at this. Let's just put a pin in this because that's a good argument. But what does the Bible say? Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. John, chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, born again, which were born not of blood, context is my blood, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I have no power over my salvation. I do not will myself saved, and I cannot will myself unsaved. I have no power over my salvation. That I am shown the power, the might, and the gift of God of salvation. It's presented to me as a gift. And I say, yes, Lord, I believe. At Romans 10, 9 to 10, I confess the belief of my heart. I, the, the Spirit of God, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, enlightens me, gives me the taste of, the light of, the glimpse of. He enlightens me, shows me, gives me a taste of the glorious gospel. And I see it, I get it, I understand it. And I say, yes, Lord, I believe. He saves me. He seals me. He holds me. He washes me. He does it all. I have no power. It's not by my will, my blood, my power, nothing of me. It's not of the will of men, not of the will of the flesh, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, uh, not of works, not by righteous works, not by works of the law. It's not by anything of me. It's all of him, none of me. I cannot lose my salvation. It cannot be lost, taken away, or be recanted. Once saved, always saved. There you go. Okay. Let's keep going. Eternal security is biblical. Amen. Okay. So I hope that makes sense. There you go. Any other comments, questions, issues, insights on that one? I'd love love to hear from you. So, um, again, not to throw in here, for example, some people will throw in, what about Matthew 24? He who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay. That passage has as much to do about salvation as Psalm 23. He leads me by, by the still waters, meaning I can make moonshine. I.e. that's cherry picking. Back up in the context of Matthew 24, you'll see the context is about the about the end of days, the tribulation period, and about all the oppressions and persecutions and all the trials and then all the, the tribulations, all these things going through, but that those days will be shortened and endure this, put up with this, endure it, because it will be over. It'll be over. It'll be over soon. Endure to the end of these afflictions and you'll be saved, i.e. delivered from these afflictions. Because that has as much to do as back in, in uh, Genesis about uh, about a, a woman who is obedient to the Lord and serves the Lord and devotes herself to the Lord that she will be saved in childbearing. Does that mean that women can only be saved if they give birth? It says, it says you will be saved in childbearing. Does that mean if you have a baby that that means you go to heaven? No, that's dumb. That's dumb. That's not what that means. It means you'll be delivered 
from the pains, from the trials and, and troubles that could potentially arise during that time of giving birth because it can have some complications with some people but that the lord will even help you even in this that'd be a great uh, blessing and benefit in this that the lord help you that's what that means so we must understand that sometimes when the word of god is talking about saved that's not it's not talking from a salvific standing point it's talking about deliverance from tribulation deliverance from troubles but then we see salvation saved as mentioned in some others that actually the context is salvationary so we need to know what the context is so yeah okay so the other one i also want to talk about just to throw in here let's just really hammer this one down uh we see in matthew chapter 7 matthew chapter 7 but but the bible says that many in that day will cry lord lord and that they believed in him but he says i don't know you and let's just look at this one just for a moment matthew chapter 7 verse 21 not everyone that saith unto me lord lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my father again what is the will of the father that all would believe upon the lord jesus christ and be saved according to the gospel that is outlined in the word of god right right that my, my children these things write i unto you uh uh, as the word of God says in first John 5 13 I'm writing to you for these two reasons I'm writing to you that believe uh, that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God believe in the Lord Jesus Christ he's writing for two period uh, two points for assurance of salvation that you can know you're saved and how to be saved now how do we how are we saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ believing on the gospel that he did seeing that we're a sinner and he died for our sins he he shed his blood and died was buried rose again third day according to the scriptures first Corinthians 15 1 to 4 we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ for our salvation by grace are you saved through faith and not of works look at this not everyone that saith unto me Lord Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my father which is in heaven many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Okay. Um, have we not done, have we not done, have we not done? Not by righteous works. Where do they say, have we not believed in thy name? These ones. Are depending on their religiosity depending on their churchianity depending upon their works depending on their righteous works to earn to gain their salvation they were not trusting in christ alone that when that when confronted instead of saying but i believed on your name as you said i believed i was trusting in you to save me they didn't say that they immediately uh, stepped back and said but i did i did i did in your name i did i did i did I, 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 we, 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 works, works, works. They're works-based salvationists trying to earn their salvation by righteous works. So it's not talking about because they weren't good enough or whatever else, or they didn't trust enough, or that, or that they lost their salvation. No, it's talking about they, these were never saved to begin with. They're works-based salvationists. So, yeah. So... There we go. So that day, talking about that day, that's the day of judgment. That's that's at the great white throne. 
That's when, when all the books are open and everything. And the, and see whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So yeah. So there you go. So hope that makes sense. Hope that clarifies that one sufficiently. Okay. Um, there we go. Um, and speaking of which, one more argument to throw in here, as I've talked about before, to understand salvation and what salvation is, I know I've gone over this, but I just want to go over this again, that salvation, as I mentioned yesterday, for example, is not a contract. We, that this, this one view, that uh, one argument is actually from my dad, Pastor Paul, um, uh, salvation is a covenant, not a contract, it is such a powerful argument it's so apropos in this because so many people of many different views treat salvation like it's a contract that if you're not producing fruit if you're not maintaining your church membership if you're not being good enough if you don't do this if you keep this if you don't do this i can't guarantee your salvation treating salvation like it's a contract a contract is a, an agreement between two people that, that I do my part, you do your part, and we fulfill the outcome. But Jesus says it's a covenant. Jesus says it's a covenant in his name. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is not a contract. A contract is not a covenant. The two are completely mutually separate, distinctively different, and you cannot mesh the two. They're completely different. A covenant is a covenant, a promise, a vow of one. As the Bible even talks about, it's a promise of one. That it's a covenant promise of God who cannot lie. God says, if you believe in me, I'll save you. God says, if you accept my gift, I'll save you. You're sealed in my name, held in my hand. I'll write your name in my book. And I will hold you. I'll never leave you. Never forsake you. I'll never let you go. All will come to me. I'll no wise cast out. No make a plug out of my hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. There's now therefore no condemnation. Then return Christ Jesus and on and on and on. And John 3, 18. Let's look at John 3, 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you, when you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your Lord God and Savior, you are, Ephesians 4.30, Ephesians 3.17, sealed by the Spirit of Christ unto the day of redemption. It's a covenant, not a contract. Jesus says that the New Testament, i.e. covenant, testament means covenant, is in his blood his blood without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin it is a covenant vow made by the blood of god acts 20 28 god purchased the church with his own blood testament literally means covenant in the original greek the old and new covenant i.e testament luke 22 verse 20 likewise also the cup after supper saying this cup is the new testament covenant in my blood which is shed for you 1 Corinthians 11.25 After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hebrews 12.24 And to Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So, as we see, salvation is by the covenant 
of God, not a contract, by the blood of God, not the blood of man, by the will of God, not the will of man, by the power of God, not the power of man, by the works of Jesus Christ, not the works of man, by the righteousness, the merit, the virtue of Jesus Christ, not ours. So, in the great words of the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards, I bring nothing to the table of my salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. And to quote the great preacher evangelist D.L. Moody, I am glad that salvation is by grace, because I do not want to sit around heaven for eternity listening to everyone else talk about and boast how they got there. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Um, uh, in regards to the will of God, uh, Michael says, in regards to the will of God, if you have time, uh, Matthew 21. Remember the rule, we got, if need be, we need to back up and look at the whole context. Matthew 21, 28 to 32. Okay. Verse, let's back up verse 27. And they answered Jesus and said, we, uh, oh, we need to back up. Oh, so, um, they're talking about the authority, but what authority do you come? And Jesus says, uh, uh, a question of the baptism of John, John the Baptist, whence was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. Can I tell what the work of John the Baptist was from, of men or of God? Of course, we know they lied because they knew, but they didn't want to admit it. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, and said Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? Okay, the will of his father. So the question is, in regards to the will of God, uh, if you have time. Okay, so we see in the word of God that there, there uh, is an understanding, a distinctive difference in regards to the will of God. The first, the first will is the will of God that all men be saved. That the will of God is that all would be saved, that you would believe on, on his son, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Now, what is the will of God for his children. What is the will of God for the unsaved? What is the will of God for the saved? So this context, because it says that he has two sons, so they are children of their father, and they and they are his children, they are of his blood, they are his blood kin, they are his children, i.e. they are saved, what is the will of God for his children, for the saved, for, for service? That we be in obedience. We may not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. You say you have faith, but I'll show you my faith by my works. So this is what James 2 is directly relating to. James is talking to Christians who are already saved and is talking about charity and Christian behavior for the purpose of promotion of the faith, not maintenance of salvation. Because it says they, these were sons... 
we uh, we then use the application of saved Christians that they're saved. What is the will of God for the saved? So we got to understand context of this that it's not just one individual will well, that well, that we all do believe that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, out of you naturally will flow springs of living water, all the good deeds, all this stuff. That's what that's talking about. So there you go. <clears throat> Okay, Rosalie says, Jesus says that we can ask for anything in his name and he will do it. But not all prayers by believers are answered. People say this passage shows that the Bible is false. It, it has false information. What are your thoughts? Go to Mark chapter 11. Now, I actually have talked to individuals about this. And that you'll notice that the majority of people that actually use this as an argument aren't actually born-again Christians. Um, just saying. Just saying. But, first thing we must do is to understand that in this context, this is talking about born-again Christians. So the first thing we must establish that if you're praying and there's no answer prayer, well, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's the first thing that I would do. That's the first thing I would say in counseling them. I would see, okay, walk them through the gospel, making sure, establishing this, that they are saved. And if they're not seeing this and get saved, and if they are saved, okay, then we move on to the next point. Okay, because in Psalms 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Hmm. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. James chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. What would that look like? Lord, could you please help me with this? But in the back of your mind, I don't know if it's going to happen. I, I doubt because... Oh, what if, what if, what if, I don't know, I, uh, you're wavering back and forth. I do believe God could do it, but I don't know if he will. You'll receive nothing of God. God doesn't honor that, he doesn't respect that. Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Mark chapter 11, verse 22, And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God, for verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, you shall have them. Okay, so then we go to uh, um, John 15. John chapter 15 and verse 7. If ye abide in me, what does that mean to abide? To abide means abode, home, your, your heritage, where you dwell, where you live. That's what that means. So if you, if you live in him, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. See, also, we see some people who say they love the Lord and they believe in Jesus, but they have problems accepting all the word of God, and they contradict the word of God, and they're believing and holding and teaching and promoting false teachings or whatever else. God's not going to honor that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Also, we see in, in uh, the, the Lord's Prayer about uh, forgiveness, forgiving those that, uh, that have uh, against you. It goes, Jesus goes on to say, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you yours. If, if uh, as Psalm 6618, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So unforgiveness, bitterness, grudge holding, God's not going to answer you. So there's a lot of self-reflection in here of your, of your stance, your holding, your belief and faith and all this, and that the Lord will not honor sin. The Lord will not honor and bless sin. That if we are hiding sin, abiding in sin, if we're not following the Lord, if we're not abiding in him, if his word, we're not allowing his word to abide in us, if we're wavering in faith and doubting his work, doubting his promises, doubting his word, he's not going to answer us. So this is where counseling, biblical counseling, um, uh, is really required. Where we need to sit the person down, examine, make sure they are in the faith truly, and then counsel them, okay, is it possible? And we examine them, we we'll walk them through the word of God, and we ask the spirit of God to reveal if there's anything in the person's life, and if there is, get it right. And the Lord will honor and respect, and he will answer those that are walking with him. So it's not just whatever state I'm in. Say, Lord, would you do this? And then he doesn't say, why won't God? That just prove that that's not true. That's false because God won't hear me. What if you're abiding in pride and arrogance, sin, rebellion, or you're doubt and faithless? You're one of those cessationistic type believers or you don't believe in the power of God today and you're, or you're doubting passages of scripture and you're being disobedient to the Lord, being grudge-holding, name-calling, unforgiving, all God's not going to answer that. So, there you go. Okay. Uh, let's go down through. Rosalie says, where do the seven deadly sins of the Catholics come from? Cherry picking of the word of God. And there's some biblical ground to that. Well, they took certain passages mentioning some different things and they elevated some sins as being superior because according to the Catholic model uh, that uh, uh, there's uh, venial, sin, venial sins was it and uh, mortal sins there's some there's some sins that if you tell a lie or whatever you can be forgiven if you do go to confessional and take the Eucharist magic Oreo cookie thing uh, whatever or you go to the confessional or whatever you repent of it and then god will forgive you but but these other sins if you commit any of these seven deadly you commit any of these you're immediately damned to hell that's nowhere in the bible so that whole catholic model is a bunch of nonsense it's all a bunch of nonsense so i don't even pay attention to any form of catholic anything it's all a bunch of nonsense all right Any other comments, questions? If not, uh, let's see. All right. This is a question that came up the other day. 
Let's see, well, how much time do we got? An hour 47. We got a few minutes. Okay, so this is a question that came up the other day. Someone was asking me about head coverings. Head coverings. And what does the Bible actually say in this? Uh, should women have their head covered when they when they go to church or they're praying, whatever? Should they wear the hats, the wimples, the veils, the whatever? Uh, should women have their head covering? What about guys? And what does the Bible actually have to say on this? Okay. Well, let's see. What does the Bible actually say? Because some denominations actually really do hard code preach that women should have their heads covered and all the rest of this. And Okay, but what does the Bible actually say? For this, I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because it is a bit different than what you might think. Religion says one thing, but the Bible says something else. Okay. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, preaching is what that means, forth-telling is in preaching, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth uh, with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one if she, if she were shaven. Okay, so, like, for example, let's start with the guys. So, glad it says here, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonored his head. Like, for example, having a hat or a hood or scarf or whatever on your head while you're praying and preaching is dishonorable. Okay, that's just what it says. Let's just, let's move on. And women praying or prophesying, witnessing, whatever else, with, with her head uncovered, dishonored her head. For that is even all one if she were shaven. What does that mean? Let's move on. If the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the men. And God is above us, and that we as men are above women in this as women were, were made to be the help meet for the men is that the, the head of the house is the man the head of the woman is the man so we see it, the picture of that which is above us is it that the the head covering is a picture of uh, uh, being uh, subdued under being under being in subjection to uh, being in service to uh, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God that the, it's just the Lord that is above us, nothing else. But the woman is the is the glory of the man. For the man, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, depicting service. It's a depiction symbolic of service. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man, and the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Now, this is interesting. Because the word long in this context, we actually do a study on this long hair, means that which is able to be flipped or flicked. By actual depiction, you do studies on this is 
the simplest way of showing it. You know, flipping and flicking your hair kind of thing. If you can flip or flick your hair, that's by depiction meaning it's long. It's a shame for men to have long hair. As a shame at him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom in other churches of God. It's not mandatory. This isn't a mandatory thing. It's, it's just, if you want to follow it in actual uh, rules of, of how it's handed down in protocol, this is what it is, but it's not mandatory. It's not to be enforced and made mandatory. But this is just what the Word of God says on this. That, that if a woman refuses to have uh, uh, this and she... Um, well, where was I going with this? My brain shut down. Uh, but uh, let's start over. <clears throat> that if a woman has her head shaved and she has short hair, that which is which is not able to be flipped or flicked, she should have a covering on her head. But if she has long hair, her hair is her covering. So if a woman does have long hair, her hair is her covering. If she has short hair, like, like mine is here, if she has short hair, which cannot be flipped or flicked, then she should have a covering. It's a shame for a woman to have short hair. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. The hair is the covering. The hair is the covering. Not the hat, the wimple, the veil, the scarf. Her hair is her covering. This is what it says here. So as we see with this, in addition with the men, talking about it's a shame for a man to uh, preach or, or, or pray with his head covered, men by this is as well, this is where the tradition Men should remove their hats and such while praying and preaching the word of God. It's a sign of respect to the Lord. It's an honoring, respectful thing as seen by God. Then it goes on to talk about women. If they're short-haired or shaved heads, they should have a covering, veil, shawl, hat. But if she has long hair, her hair is her covering, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. Women's long hair is her covering. She doesn't need a hat or anything if her hair is long. So to this end as well, we must understand 1 Corinthians 11, 16, because what a lot of denominations do is they stop short and they don't preach verse 16. All they do is they take, they take verses 3 to 15 and then enforce it as a rule. Not understanding verse 16 is the final bit of this passage. It says that it's not mandatory and should not be enforced. If a person, it's up to the person's choice if they want to follow it. But if they want to follow the actual protocols of this, this is here's the protocols. But if they don't want to, and they want to be contentious about it, leave them alone. It's not mandatory. And there you go. So, just want to throw that out there. <clears throat> so, any other comments, questions, issues, insights, anything else at all? Anything else at all? Um... Going through the comments here is anything I missed, and also, folks, please, uh, if I missed your comment, if you made a uh, asked a question or made a comment, or whatever, and I missed it, just let me know. I'm I easily get distracted and get off course, and I do miss some people's comments. So, if I missed yours, then please let me know. Just just please repeat it again. Okay. All right, so there we go. Um, so wraps it up there. Is there anything else? 
okay now <clears throat> there is one more thing I wanted to present today and I'm actually nervous about this I want to be 100% honest with you folks and I, I really want you to understand where I'm coming from this I, I w do not want you to misunderstand me uh, this is very important this is very serious and I do not want you to misunderstand me because some people might get the wrong impression from this might accuse me falsely regarding this I'm just gonna read scripture and I want you to tell me what this means okay but this is very very important this is in regards to what's happening in the Middle East now in regards to Israel and Palestine and all the rest of this um I have been asked my thoughts on this again and again and uh, I've been thinking about it I've been praying about it and how I should respond to this because I want to be biblical I don't want to interpret it I don't want it to be about me and what I feel what I think it means what I what my opinion is on this I, what does the word of God actually have to say on this so I just want to present to you a study that I've put together in regards to this and I want to preface this I am not, I am categorically not anti-Semitic. Please understand that. I am not. I hate nobody. I am not against anybody. I am not racist in any way, shape, or form. I am not misogynist. I am not anti-Semitic or any of these things. I am not. All people are made in the image of God. As Acts 17, 26, God has made all the nations of the earth of one blood. Everybody's equal. Nobody's superior than anyone else. Your skin color means nothing. We're all made in the image of God. Male and female created he them. I absolutely firmly believe this. But in regards to Israel. In regards to Israel. How should we biblically view this? Okay. How should we approach this? As we do understand by the word of God that being Jew or Gentile is irrelevant. As Galatians 3, 28 to 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Just as Acts chapter 15 in the apostolic council, they say how the Gentiles are saved the same as we by faith through grace. It's one way, one truth, one life. And that, and that anybody, anywhere, no matter what you are, can be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You agree with that? You see that? Okay. You, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, the question that comes arises of this about the promise of Abraham, about the land of Israel, the land, the land, the land, the land of Israel. The promise of Abraham and the seed of the promise. What is the promise of God and how does this apply? How is this biblically seen? What about the land of Israel? What about the nation of Israel? What does the Bible actually have to say on this? Is the promise of Abraham? Now, this is the, I, I, I'm going to preface this with a question. Okay, so please write this down and think about this. Let me know. The promise of Abraham from God, from God to Abraham, the promise of Abraham, the seed of the promise. 
Is it of faith or blood lineage? Galatians 3, 28 to 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. For, ye are, for there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 12, 2 to 3. And I, will I, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How? Matthew 7, sorry, Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. But when he saw, John Baptist, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring, there, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, proof of faith. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. But those, when we look at this though, but those who say they are Jews and are not, obsess over genealogies and strivings of the law to prove that they are of the promise like the Pharisees with John Baptist. 1 Timothy 1.4 Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions, but rather godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Titus 3.9 But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable in vain. Romans 4.13-16 For the promise of God to Abraham, the promise of God, the promise of Abraham, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Romans 9, 6-8 Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. What is the promise? Of faith. They which are of faith. Say not because we are, of, we are of Abraham that we are of the promise. You're of the promise by faith. By faith. Believing in the promise. The belief of faith. The belief of faith. The belief of faith. The belief of faith is what makes you of the seed. 
being in Christ Jesus, you're of the seed of Abraham. Being in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Jesus is the faith. Jesus is the promise. It's by faith through grace, not by law, not by blood, not by lineage, not by genealogy. Say not because I'm of the lineage of Abraham, you're of the promise. You're of the promise by faith. You're of the promise by faith. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, which is of the flesh, by blood, lineage, genealogy. They are not of the promise. They are not the children of God. Those which are of the promise by faith. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Go read it yourself. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Revelation 3, 9. Revelation 3 9 I know thy works behold I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it for thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name behold I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not but do lie how by denying his name Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet, Gentiles, and to know that I have loved thee. Galatians 3, 20, 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's a big difference between the land of Israel which was promised to Abraham and to his seed. And who are his seed? Those are of the promise of faith, not to just those who are of blood by lineage. Who inherits Jerusalem in the millennium? When Christ comes in the millennium, who inherits Jerusalem? Who reigns with Christ in Jerusalem for a thousand years? The believers. Who is the heir of Abraham according to the promise? Those which are of faith. Those who believe in the Lord. Those which are born again saved. Those who are the saved. Those who believe in the Lord. Those who are by faith in the promise. Not just by blood. Say not because we are of Abraham's seed. And we are heirs according to the promise. You are according to the promise by faith. That's what the word of God says. So all because they're of blood, that doesn't mean that they're of God. That doesn't mean that they're of the promise, that they're just living there. There are those who are Israelites, those who live in the land of Israel, but they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. Who are those that actually uh, actually inherit the land that the land actually belongs to? Who, do, who is God going to actually give the land to? Genesis. Uh, look, at, look at this. And Revelation and, and Romans. And all down through in Matthew 3, 7 to 9, Galatia, uh, Genesis 12, 2 to 3. Who was the land given to? Those are of the promise. Those are of the promise by faith. So what about all that is happening in, in the Middle, Middle, East, uh, Middle East right now? Well, that's, that's all prophetic about the wars, rumors of wars and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, according to the word of God, I'm just saying, look, look read it, read it. Acts 17, 26, Galatians 3, 20, 29, Genesis 12, 2 to 3, Matthew 3, 7 to 9, 1 Timothy 1, 4, Titus 3, 9, Romans 4, 13 to 16, Romans 9, 6 to 8, Revelations 3, 9. They're not, they're, they're not according to the promise because of blood. They're according to the promise by faith. 
That's what the Word of God says. So that's just my thoughts. Who uh, does the land actually belong to? Abraham, by faith. To those who believe by faith, by the faith of God, according to the faith of God, according to the promise of God. Those who are made heirs according to the promise by faith. You tell me what that sounds like. Again, Acts 17, 26. Galatians 3, 28 to 29. Genesis 12, 2 to 3. Matthew 3, 7 to 9. 1 Timothy 1, 4. Titus 3, 9. Romans 4, 13 to 16. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Revelation 3, 9. And then, again, I ended it with Galatians 3, 20 to 29. That's what it says. So again, I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, physically, are they all children. But in Isaac, the promise, shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise, by faith, are counted for the seed. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Something to think about. Something to think about. So again, I, I please do not misunderstand me. Please do not misrepresent or misquote in any way, shape, or form, I'm not anti-Semitic. I don't hate the Jews. I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. I'm just saying, look, according to the word of God, who are those who are of the promise of Abraham according to the word of God? Those who are of faith, by faith of the promise. Those who believe by faith are made according to the promise of God. The promise of God to Abraham is placed upon those who believe by faith. We are made heirs according to the promise by faith. And for us, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But because thou hast not denied my name. And it says, but those that have denied his name are of the synagogue of Satan, not of God. They are not of God because they rejected that which the Lord has set forth. But those who believe on his name are then adopted in and made heirs according to the promise by faith. That's what it says. That's what it says. So does the land actually belong to him. You tell me. Do the study yourself. Um, actually, you know what? One more time. I just want to go through these references one more time. Just to mention the references. And can someone in the comments, I'll read it slowly. Can someone in the comments please Write these references in the comments so that anyone else can go through this. <clears throat> Again, the topic is the promise of Abraham. The seed of the promise. Is it of faith or blood lineage? And the references that you want to look up. Acts 17.26. 
Galatians 3, 28 to 29. Genesis 12, 2 to 3. Matthew 3, 7 to 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Timothy 1, 4. Titus 3, 9. Romans 4, 13 to 16. And then the key to all of this. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Romans 9, 6 to 8. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. And again, I, I wanted to end all this one more time to look back at Galatians 3, 28 to 29 again. So you begin it with this and you end it with this passage. Galatians 3, 28 to 29. So please, 